This is Sunny Punked. This episode, Le Testament d'Orphée. While Jean Cocteau was never a prolific filmmaker, the French creative was a polymath when it came to the arts, producing a huge volume of work across various disciplines, including theatre, literature, painting, sculpture, criticism and poetry. In 1959, at the age of 69, knowing he had entered the final stage of his life, he set about making one final film, Le Testament d'Orphée, literally translated into English as The Will of Orpheus. This was to be a deeply personal and reflective journey for Cocteau as he sums up his life's work not through just the revisiting of his previous films Le Sang d'un Poète and Orphée, but his entire artistic canon. Financed in large part by François Truffaut as a thank you for Cocteau's support for Le Quatre Sans Coup, Le Testament d'Orphée is a free-form film which spurns commercial concerns and in Cocteau's words is intended for the vast audience of young people in cinematex throughout the world which has never offered the kinds of films it thirsts for. Over the last couple of episodes of the podcast, we've been exploring Cocteau's so-called Orphic trilogy of films and sharing our responses to the Cocteau cinematic experience. We've been on a journey watching him and his thoughts age over the 30-year period of the cycle's creation. And so, it's time to conclude our path together with a film that at times can seem impenetrable. Hi, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and my film-watching partner drinking in this challenging cinema remains Mr. Neil Sedgwick of This Parish and Films in Faith. Swimming in the juices of Cocteau's brain. <laughs> I am adrift. <laughs> I don't even know where we start with this. Although I do like the idea that Cocteau thinks that his films are for the kids. Um, <laughs> you know, do you want to go and see Sing 2? No. Give me the Orphic trilogy, Daddy. What a well-educated 10-year-old you are. I'm sure he means older. I'm sure he means like young adult teenagers or whatever but yeah i think he's he's talking more about sort of like um university students is what he's thinking i mean this is a man who's in his you know late 60s early 70s um he's he's thinking about people who are just beginning that stuff i mean when he talks about the cinema text that strikes me as being a very university kind of thing i mean we have one at our uni it's i i helped run it um surprisingly um you know, it, it, it's a place where, like, university is one of those places where a lot of ideas start getting sparked, and you see, like, that bit in uh, Free Guy, where Guy suddenly his brain starts to explode and expand <laughs> as you get introduced to new ideas. I, that yeah. that is us whenever we are in theory at our university experience, and whenever those ideas suddenly start to cement, and you start to crave something that that's slightly different. You know, yeah. I mean, the, there is a place for. Um, like popcorn movies there's a place for for superheroes and romance stories and all the rest of it but there's also a need for something that does something different that challenges oh, hey. you and I, <laughs> I i think it's fairly safe to say neil that over the last three weeks you have definitely been challenged hey this one this one was pro i, I think actually out of the three this is probably the biggest challenge for me right i had texted you within half an hour and all my text message said was something along the lines of, well, dot, 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 this is bonkers. And then a series of like confused gifts just kind of going, what is this? Yeah. Because it initially we returned to Orphe. Mm -hmm. uh, we see death and 
suggest and herbities. I always say that wrong. Herbities. Herbities. Sorry, forgive my stupid pronunciation missteps. Um, as death and your man are taken off, mm. and you're like, oh, we're back in the la- we're back in the last film. We're going to see what happens to them when they get taken away. Yeah, it feels like a sequel, doesn't it? At yeah. the start. <laughs> and then that goes away. There is a balloon which gets uh there is there no, sorry, there's not a balloon. There's a cloud of smoke which reverse shots itself into a balloon on a knife edge, coming towards a knife edge. And then you start into a completely different film. Yeah. And I'm I'm sitting there going what what are we doing? You that you're you you're set then off kilter by a character you've never met, this professor character in various forms, who seems to be visited by some time traveling gent version mm-hmm. of Cocteau mm-hmm. who jumps around his timeline until he finds a version he can talk to. Yeah. To get shot by a bullet. Which then turns him into what would have been a current version of Cocteau. And then there's a guy with a horse's head on. And by the way, if you think that this podcast recording has got broken up and chopped and badly edited, it's not. This is genuinely what happens. I, th- I, th- I think at this point, this is when the drugs start to kick in. <laughs> you know what I said the first time around about there still being some opium in his system? 30 years later it's still there 30 years later there's some dregs in the veins clearly when this comes around so i i mean i think it's probably fair to say uh the 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 one mistake you can make the one mistake that probably that one might be tempted to make watching the testament d'orfei is the same mistake that one can make watching le song d'un poet the blood of a poet which is trying to make causal narrative sense of it because it it ain't a causal narrative film. He he um, he himself was was very clear about the fact that this was uh, an experiment. He was challenging himself, and that he wasn't worried about commercial concerns. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> you know. I mean, he was he was funded by Truffaut, who was just really really grateful for the support that Cocteau had given his film. And he was in a position to return the favour. And Cocteau had tried to raise the money elsewhere. And largely, people weren't interested. They said, nothing happens. We're not going to fund a film where nothing happens. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, and I disagree with nothing happens. Yeah, but it's the, I think it's the producer mindset. You know, they're, they're expecting a certain kind of film. And this does not deliver that kind of film. Even yeah. Orpheus, Orfei. I mean, it's it's still a cocktail film, and it's very definitely a bit bizarre. But there is, it is much easier to find a straight narrative in it. Yes, and it's it's much more mainstream, um, less less surreal, less avant garde. Um, so uh, yeah, for 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 the benefit of our those of you who are joining in with and, and are not Neil and me, um, what I would say to you is look, this might serve you better if you watch the film first and then come back to us. It's, I mean, it should be common sense by now because we're talking about really old films that that often applies. Um, but go and give it a watch, then come back, have a listen to the pod, or you can listen to the pod, see if it makes any sense, and then go back and watch the film if you've seen it before. Um, but we're not going to try and interpret the plot, particularly because Cocteau himself says. 
the I mean he's not keen on those sorts of interpretations. He didn't make it with that kind of that kind of mentality. So I think out of respect, um, it would probably be wrong for us to try and force a narrative through it. Yeah. But I think we've we've basically been enjoying the experience. I alluded to this in the intro. And he talks a lot about film being an experience. So this is our responses to the experience of having watched the film. Last week, for those of you who who, who listened in, you mean you'll be very aware that we went down a complete tangent in terms of our own mortality. Um, but that was our direct response to yeah. the ideas that he's putting across on screen. Now, I'm not going to preconceive this with a, a very clear idea about where we're going to go, because again, if we were to do that, we would end up trying to find some sort of poetry in this, or, or we, you know, which is. We try. We try to find something that's poetic, and we're not looking for that. We're looking for poetry. Mm. So we want to not plan what we're going to do for the next forty minutes, <laughs> and we'll just <laughs> see where it goes. Unless there be occasional interventions, just the same as that when he's creating these things, there are ideas that come up that he delves into, but then it goes all sorts of other places. Does that yeah. make sense? No, I think it does because there's no. I think one of the things I've picked up through the three films, and uh-huh. I think he he in fact says this at the start of one of them is it you know legends are are what you make of them paraphrasing mm-hmm. and i think that's in, in regard to orfe um and i think he very much uh looks at it at a point of view of yeah so one of the things i've never been able to do you know when you go to like the ulster museum you go to an art gallery uh the mm. tate whatever and you find people standing and staring at paintings or, or sculptures or whatever, looking for mm-hmm. something. I have never in in my 41 years been able to do that. My, my attitude in rooms like that is, wow, that's an incredible piece of art. And then move on. <laughs> right. I, I can't, you know, like people stand and stare at these things like magic art pictures for yeah. magic eye pictures. Sorry for, waiting for oh, something yeah. to be revealed sit, sit and cross my eyes until the point where it all pops out of the screen yeah yeah like i've i've never i've never been able to do that with uh an art in the traditional sense of statue or or portrait or something like this right but with these they like i <laughs> i joke about swimming in the in the juices of cocteau and i'm like but these these are lingering in my in my head days after long time after the things that are being revealed to me, particularly the last one where we, we did talk about, about mortality and things like that, where it's, you know, mm-hmm. when you have a character who is death, it's very hard not to think of what death means, you know, mm-hmm. which is it's a fairly obvious statement to make, but it, it, it's what it, it's what it should, what it should do. And with this, when you talk about how he considers his final phase of life. Yeah. I felt this this is the one where I kind of go this this is the dreamscape this is this is the internal workings of the mind of an artist because mm-hmm. it is so uh obscure at points and so uh it bounces around so many different things that it feels like a dream 
like when you when you're when you're dreaming at night and you find yourself in place A and then suddenly you're in place B all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. That's what this film does. It it bounces around different settings. It bounces back to characters from previous films. Let it me quote. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to quote Cocteau at you. Go for it. I know you love doing this by this point. <laughs> I have I never that. quoted so liberally on our podcast until we got to Cocteau. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love his book, the art of the art of cinema. His little book of his collected writings on films, which includes his own stuff. Um, so he says, "Le Testament d'Orphée has nothing to do with dreams. It borrows the mechanism of dreaming. That is all. Uh, for the reality of dreams places us in situations and events that do not surprise us, absurdly splendid though they are. We submit to them without the slightest surprise. And if the splendor becomes tragic, we have no chance of escaping except by waking up, over which we have no control." Film allows a large number of people to dream the same dream together, and this dream, which is not a dream, but a transient, transcendent reality, must not allow the spectators to wake up, that is to say, to leave our universe for their own, because then they would be as bored as people to whom we tell our dreams. This is where the problem starts. The slightest overlong passage, drop in tension or lapse of interest, and the spectator will escape from the collective hypnosis, and this one escape is liable to prove contagious and lead to others. That is what I was afraid of and was very surprised to find from the accounts I've been given that my houses are attentive and do not, either voluntarily or by accident, resist the fakir that a cinema screen must become through its light and the images that unfold on it. So it's not a dream. <laughs> But, it's a right. dream. It's it's I, I disagree with part of that quote. I, I disagree it. with part of it. Not not just the dream thing, because it feels to me very much like a dream. Yeah. Um but I disagree with the idea that when we go to see a film, we all see the same film. <sighs> yeah. I, I don't think I don't think in a room full of cinema gores, whatever whatever film you see. I, I don't believe that we all see the same thing because certain certain elements will appeal or not appeal. Certain lines will have a have a different resonance with what's going on uh, outside the, the doors of that screen. Mm-hmm. I you can be you can be in a film and ha- have a very cathartic experience while the person behind you is just frustrated because they're annoyed by it. So I could sit and watch this and have a wonderfully cathartic experience and find that it soothes my soul. Mm-hmm. Whereas you could watch it and be incredibly annoyed by how jumbled and how... So I, I don't know if I agree with him on I, that. Well, I, I think what it allows us to do is to all see the same imagery. Yes. And we're all put in that same world now our experiences of the world are what's different Hmm. so i think we can all see the same dream but we all respond to it in our own way um so that's why you and i may suddenly be at loggerheads although neil did send me a screen grab last (laughs) night (laughs) i was like yep i've got the same screen grab that was the same quote that i thought is like yep (laughs) it's like so there's there's an element of like the same things are kind of sort of puncturing our you know, our conscience and our, our emotional responses, yeah. which is interesting because at that point we are dreaming the same dream. Yeah. Um, so he, he, he does, okay. it, it, 
So there is an element of that, but I think there's a difference between the dream and the experience and the interpretation and what he sort of, he, he says that he's interested whenever people say that they felt something about his films or that they, you know, they respond in a certain way or they read into it that he's a sex maniac or whatever else, his actual quote. Um, mm. It's not an omission, it's just an observation. <laughs> um, so, he, but he himself tries to avoid interpreting the film because we, I mean, we've, we've, we, we're, th- we're three films into this now. We're used to his idea that it says that, you know, it's, it's an experience. It's not a, it's not, he's not trying to represent his dream. He's just trying to put thoughts and images onto a screen. Um, I d- yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm not agreeing with you. <laughs> no. And I, when, when you say that, I can, I can feel myself leaning to agreeing with you in parts of that as well. Yeah. Um, because we do all see the same image, but we don't all have the same experience necessarily, yeah. but equally we may impart, which is why I send you a screen grab of the thing that you have just screen grabbed as we were watching nearly in tandem <laughs> last night. Um, you know, so it, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's a, I mean, that's, a, that to me is magical that, you know, that of all the things that you should pinpoint out that you pinpoint that moment. It's that thing where, you know, where you, you, you talk to somebody else and like they've, they've connected with the same piece of work. I suppose it's what we're all trying yeah. to do with like these podcasts and these conversations is to find our, our kind of commonality. Yeah. Well, that, that, that particular moment, let's talk about that moment. Cause the okay. quote was a film is a, he is asked to defend his art and his thinking, um, how he sees the world in front of death and hurt the bees. I've said that 17 different ways. Did I get it right that time? Hurt the bees? Close enough, yeah. <laughs> they reappear as some kind of jury f- from which he is supposed to defend himself mm-hmm. and what he has done, what he has achieved, and how he sees what is a poet. And they ask him at one point, what is a film? To which he replies, a film is a petrifying source of thought. It brings dead acts to life. It makes it possible to give apparent reality to the unreal. At which point I screen grabbed that. I screen grabbed the first couple of lines of that because obviously subtitled it wasn't all there. It, I think it just said a film is a petrifying source of thought. Yeah, was what I sent you. Um, and obviously we're a film podcast, so that you know that has a particular resonance to what we do. Oh, it's in totally Instagrammable little like. <laughs> yeah, it's very quotable, yeah. very social media friendly for us. Um, but it it just leapt out at me, and it's yeah. interesting that it it leaps out at you because when we are talking about him as a filmmaker if that's his honest appraisal Mm -hmm. of what a film is or can be then it's very interesting to take that and apply it to other things that we watch Mm -hmm. you know so regardless of this film a film is a petrifying source of thought it brings dead acts to life it makes it possible to give apparent reality to the unreal and to take that into a very generic form you know in terms of comic book movies, which fill mm-hmm. our multiplexes so much more, you are making it possible to give apparent reality to the unreal. Yeah. When you have a young teenage boy bitten by a radioactive spider, or you have a man who can withstand gamma radiation blasting through his body, and then he just becomes some massive angry green giant. You know, like, this is the apparent reality in an unreal, in the logical sense, event. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so when you, you know, not that I'm going to go and see Spider-Man and think, what would John Cocteau make of this? But when you when you put that quote through it as a lens, mm-hmm. he's fairly spot on. Yeah. Like no lies, no lies are detected there. Um, so it's interesting to have his perspective as a filmmaker on what film is mm-hmm. and then apply that elsewhere. So that that's part of the reason why I screen grabbed it, you know, so it's it becomes like a it becomes like a litmus test for what we are watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he elaborates further and he, he talks in, in his writing about film. He, he, he goes a little bit further than that. And he, he sort of says that um, the more unreal a situation, the more you have to make it, you have to rely on realism in order yeah. to make the unreal convincing. Um, but I'm also always struck particularly whenever we're looking back at older films Mm. about how essentially we are looking at, I mean, he talks about bringing dead acts to life. Well, that's essentially old cinema. We we are watching people and craftsmen who have died years and years ago. Mm. And yet for the duration of the film, they appear like these sort of ghostly specters on a screen. They're literally projections of light that are before us. And for 90 minutes, we are utterly convinced we're in the room with them and in their space. Mm. That is a, a very specific ability of film compared to any of the other art forms. You yeah. know, we can read the words of Shakespeare, but it's not the same thing. We can't see Shakespeare. We can see a photograph of our dead grandparents, mm. but it's a photograph. It's a still image. It's it's a it's it's nothing. Whereas film gives this illusion of life. There's something. There's something about art. In be it film, literature, uh, you know, works of art, portraits, and things like that, mm. that have a have an eternal life to them that other things don't. Yeah. So, in some ways, um, even if your only encounter is through these films, Cocteau never dies. No, Cocteau endures immortality eternal all those things that get talked about within the film and he i don't know if this is a real thing or not but they talk about a phoenixologist mm-hmm. in this film the science of dying and being born again mm-hmm. and as soon as you encounter so this this is my first encounter mm-hmm. these these three films 1930 1950 1960 sitting in 2022 for the first time watching these mm-hmm. there isn't there is a an immortality to them the fact that these still exist and are accessible um <laughs> accessible at least to watch if not fully understand <laughs> is is wonderful uh-huh. do you know like they are when you are a filmmaker you have that phoenix like quality because what you know, there will be there will be a period of time where, say, Cocteau is not referenced again for another twenty years. Mm. But at some point, somebody's going to find these again, and the phoenix rises again. Do you know, so there's always there's always a certain level of immortality to these that I like. Now I I I really appreciate. Mm. But put that put that in modern terms. 
Um, I love, uh, I love a Scorsese film. Mm-hmm. You know, I love a Tom Hanks film. Tom Hanks will never die, <laughs> at least on screen, because there'll always be th- those films will endure. Mm. Scorsese's film, Scorsese's work will endure. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of, of of other directors whose stuff I really love. Uh, Wes Anderson, Mark Cousins, they will always continue in some form or other. Mm. Um, and all of them, you know, you're you're not only bringing dead acts to life in the story, but you're you're bringing dead actors, mm. dead creatives to life every time you decide to to put on a a dvd <laughs> at, at risk of, uh, of offending cocteau who says that, that anything that can basically you can explain is vulgar um it's one of his another one of his immensely uh, quotable things just determined not to explain what is going on in his films um it strikes me as well that that one of the things that again he repeatedly says is that uh for the poet the poet has to go through multiple deaths in order to be Mm. and there's that sense of not being properly recognized until you're dead and i don't think he was not an artist who was not recognized in his own lifetime he he was and he was engaged and he was appreciative of that um but he repeatedly kills off himself within his work Mm. (laughs) <laughs> in order to live yeah and it's a i i don't know what it means really and i don't know that i want to investigate what it means really but i am aware that this repeated death of himself is almost a way of of dealing with one's own again dealing with one's own mortality mm. of of accepting that this is going to happen and so staging it in a way that allows you to go through this process which also allows you to reconsider what your work and your life means um so it's 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 a it's a strange 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 thing um he does he does take a very grisly death in in this at one point where he gets a spear spear through through the through the middle of him um which is rather unexpected i mean you know i i had forgotten he got speared in this i haven't seen this film for quite a while um and and suddenly you know he's he's in this wonderful uh me, he's in this wonderful wonderful location um and uh sort of underground cavern uh which is filmed in the Le, Les Beaux de Provence hmm. um it's a, an old marble mine okay so it's, it's the actual physical set. I know it. For, I knew it before I'd ever seen this film because it was also used as the film location for a Hammer horror film called Maniac. Okay. And they had also set huge sequences in this gorgeous thing. It's now an art, basically an, a, a temporary installation art gallery space. Okay. Um, so it is someone that you can go and visit if you ever happen to be in the neighborhood. Wow. Um, but as he's in there, there's this, this, this sequence and he gets... He gets speared, speared right through the heart, and he dies. And then there's a sort of funereal gathering from which he comes back to life mm-hmm. and wanders off again back through the underworld, trying to to to, to escape. I guess. Yeah, but that's not at, which, at which point he has his eyes are closed and he has uh, eyes painted over his eyelids. 
which in itself is that very kind of reminds me of like those kind of uh Norse type films, you know, they would give you they would give you a coin to pay the the boat on the way to death or whatever. It's, it's, he's going back to this classical mythology. Um yeah. but there's also a sense of like if your eyes are closed it's, it's your his eyes are closed but they're also wide open. Mm. Um, yeah. which one is tempted to start reading things into about how we understand stuff like even though it looks like you're gone there's still an alertness and awareness you're able to see without being able to see or at least create the illusion of being able to see without being able to see <laughs> yeah something like S- that something yeah. um, I mean funny you should you should say that you know this uh, you struggle with trying to sit down and actually watch artwork to look at an art and take it in and suck it in yeah um, apart from the fact I'm thinking like we need to go on a mandate and go and have a look at some art gallery. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, <it's>, uh, <laughs> do the uh, do the art tours. Um, but the, the other thing that strikes me, it's it's funny enough. Probably the 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 one picture I have spent more time with than anything else is a cocktail. Right. And in London, there is just off Leicester Square and beside the Prince Charles Cinema, which you may know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a little church called Notre Notre Dame. Not around, uh, in in the Paris in, in centre London, and in 1960, Cocteau went there for a week and he painted this massive mural. And every time I am in London, in the centre of London, I try and make a, a detour into that little church and I go and stare at that painting for I don't know, five ten minutes, just to kind of get my my fix of it. I think it's an incredibly beautiful piece of work. Um. But every time I go, it rewards me in some way. It's again about experience in the art. Okay. For me. Um, and it is now behind kind of perspexy glass because somebody doodled on it. Isn't that true? <laughs> I don't know if it's so, about, somebody tried the doodling to, bit, but somebody tried to add something to it or. But it's, it, it's, it's, it is behind screens. So, I mean, I think it's still used for certain services that, that, I mean, that, that, that church as well, because of where it is, is, I mean, last time I was in, last couple of times I've been in is often you'll find people who don't have um, a place to go end up in that mm. church just for a bit of warmth and a bit of comfort and, and a place to, to just sort of like disengage with the world I guess mm. um, which is quite nice to see to see the sort of a church being used as a place of giving comfort to refuge but um, I, don't, I don't even know that I want to go up and be able to touch the work I mean and for me just to be able to see it at all to see something that he created so close and i know there are other places i could go um where i can see a lot more and a lot closer up but it just strikes me as sort of incongruous in a way that this piece exists where it exists and that people don't realize that it's there that you i mean there, there must be film fans who walk up and down that street every day yeah, who have hello. no idea that this is sitting there I have been there. I have been to watch films in the, in the, Prince, in Charles. the Prince Charles and when I've been in London and did not know that was there. Next Didn't thing you're there, there, you'll be taking a detour next week. Like, it's yeah. famous. <laughs> Crossing yourself on the way in and sort of just, you know. Definitely. Um So yeah, so so for me, like I suppose it's this this experience thing. Like I feel that having watched these three films in a run, there's been some sort of experience of art and this i think was actually the first cocktail film i ever watched oh my goodness this was something i was going to text you i was going to text you when i watched this and went dear love the person who saw this one just like individually you know there's these stories of like 
people jumping into trilogies at the last film <laughs> and coming out going, I didn't understand anything that was going on. Yeah. Like even in the context of like the matrix or something, <laughs> like just going to see that individually on its own. I was like, how would you, that was one of the thoughts I had last night. Like, how would you fathom? Like if you just happen to pick this up, how would how would you approach this at all? Like what what happened to your brain the first time? Well, I know I didn't watch the trilogy in order, right? <laughs> that much I'm, I very definitely remember because some of it made no sense to me, and it wasn't until a year or two later when I saw the others that it actually all started to fall into place. Okay, and I think from memory, I'd either borrowed this on on DVD or I'd went to see it in the QFT by chance because I was watching as much as I could at that point. Hmm. And I was sort of interested, and I thought, oh, this sounds good. Um, and I don't know, there's something about it that, that, that stimulates, but I, I, it, it resonates with me differently now than it did then. I mean, like that whole opening now for me is a very Doctor Who-ish kind of thing, where you've got this time-travelling Jean Cocteau who is doing all timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly stuff yeah, and jumping back and forth across the time and creating paradoxes that allow him to be who he is and again brings him back to life because he gets shot and then is, is suddenly alive again so with it, very early on we have a death of the poet literally the le sang d'un poet i guess you know it's the the, that, the blood of of jean cocteau and and like so I, there's a whole lot of stuff going on and it's meta-ness is something that i appreciate better now but even then i still don't know that I could penetrate it or want to penetrate it. Like trying to make sense of is is suggest suggest or is it Edward his his son and lover, you know, is is very very confusing. Is Jean Cocteau a, a Jean Cocteau or is Jean Cocteau a character that happens to be a time traveler called Jean Cocteau? <laughs> because he plays both. Yeah. And so you start to try and unpick it logically, like even that whole, um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. Like he, he, he says to Edward when Edward comes out of the water, I suggest, it's like he recognises the photograph, he recognises, I recognise suggest from my film Orphan. Mm. <laughs> it's like, okay, right, so you recognise him as a character from your film and he sees him and he doesn't recognise him because the hair is the wrong colour. It's like, well, hold on, you also later on acknowledge him as your son. So you know exactly who he is, but you're pretending that you don't. Yeah, and it, it, yeah. I mean, then you realize that this is incredibly dreamlike in its construction. That you accept it for what it is in the moment that it's playing out, and you don't pick it apart in the dream. Like you never pick your dreams apart while you're dreaming them. <laughs> you just kind of like sit, you absorb them, and you go, "Yeah, that happened. Yeah, I that that really unpleasant thing happened, and I don't understand what was going on there." Um, God, I had, a, I had a dream last night, a phone call in my dream. And basically, my phone was ringing in the real world and it woke me up. <laughs> just like, but it kind of filtered through into the subconscious state. So you just kind of absorb that and you, you kind of cope with it. And But for that for that moment, for the, for the cinematic experience of Cocteau, the thing to do is not to question what's going on. It is literally just to ride along with it for the duration of the film. Yeah, and then afterwards, it's our, our our natural temptation to try and pick apart and understand what it is that we've seen, rather than let it cogitate. Which is why I said to you yesterday, <laughs> trying to arrange a time to do this podcast recording, is just like sleep on it. <laughs> yeah, see yeah. how you feel tomorrow. You've kind of got to let 
the current take you you know you've got you've got to kind of just go okay just you know back to swimming in the juices of cocktail just let the current take you and see where you end up you know it 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 very much um there's no there's no point in coming to any of these films yeah and trying to apply uh be it causal narrative or logic or anything like that and as i say that i go well instantly you've probably put a bunch of people off ever engaging with this but what i would say to you is that it it does still resonate as as illogical as it is at times Mm -hmm. and as strange as the narrative gets like from these three conversations where where we have gone in these three conversations already Mm. The, the things that are presented to us resonate. Um, and I have told you that I have, I'm becoming slightly cocktail obsessed now. I'm like last night, like art of cinema, getting that going to get, the, there's like a photo book of this film somewhere. Yeah. And I'm like going to try and get my hands on a copy of that to see, is there any more explanation or is it more just factual about where shots were taken and things like that? Is there any more, Scribblings of thought in the middle of it, or even he was interested in that one because it wasn't him that took the photographs. No, it's a, it's a different photographer. And he he said he was all, he was interested in, in it being done because he thought it would bring out something else that he hadn't seen in his own work. Yeah, because I don't I don't know how how quickly I will return to these films. <laughs> but. <laughs> But what no, but what I want, what I want is I want to be able to like take that book off the shelf and look at it and like be reminded. Yeah. Without without necessarily having to sit down and, and do the, the visual uh engagement to to be able to have those kind of stills there to kind of remind me of what I've seen and what I felt, which I suppose mm-hmm. completely negates my I never stare at art. That probably negates my entire argument there. I never stand and stare in the museum. But it's, it's. I mean, even then, when you stand and look at a piece of art, unless you have art in your home, yeah. Um, and even then, I think we tend to look past it so much because it's there. Hmm. Um, but after a while, you have to leave the museum because if nothing else, the museum closes. Um, oh, I'm, suddenly I'm thinking about Vertigo. I'm thinking about Madeline sitting looking at the painting in Vertigo. And taking your time and Jamie Stewart's character, Scotty, watching her, watching the painting. Mm. And this sort of need to absorb ourselves within this. And you've got art students who are trying to, who sit and they look at art and try and copy the art in order to understand the mechanics and the methodologies and the, and the thinking processes. And there's sometimes a, an impression I get that this is the reserve of intellectuals or the talented or the gifted whereas that's not actually the case at all it's a case of you know we we see the art and it either connects or it doesn't connect mm. and if it connects we can spend some time with it if we're able to although i mean if you've ever been to the musée d'orfer or the louvre it's very very difficult to actually spend any time with any painting without being interrupted by a bunch of tourists yeah. um you know it's like 30 seconds and you've got to move on because there's a whole crowd of screaming kids <laughs> um, you know there's that there's that shot of is it the mona lisa where it's just somebody has stood back and took the photo of everybody taking photos of the Mona Lisa on their phones. Yeah. Like it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating 
photo in itself that that image you know like i suppose the question is about how we actually experience art and what is we're taken away from it and i think to not watch these films on a weekly basis is fine Hmm. because it's clear that they have left a mark and there are going to be scenes and moments and lines that stick with you and they resonate and that's what creates something else yeah speaking of which disobedience is a religion with you <laughs> thought that one would ride up with time with push, you <laughs> push the wee button push the I little don't. films of faith button jot uh, that one down as well <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah like yeah that's it that's it, it it's what that's, that's always been part of my thing when I come to film. It's not necessarily the film as an entirety mm-hmm. that resonates, but a throwaway line of dialogue like that, disobedience is a religion with you, will make me sit, like it'll make me kind of sit up in my chair and kind of go, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> what do we mean by that? How do we pick that apart? Um, well, I think, again, at risk of, of trying to, as he, as he says shortly after that, what can be proved as vulgar. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's. I think that also is quite a good reflection of the way that he's approached the three films, particularly Le Song Dun Poet in this one, is that he's not following the traditional rules at all. <laughs> Definitely he's not. doing something else that's entirely different. Um, it's not quite a theatre. It's not quite then it's definitely not a theatrical film, although there are elements of that within it. Mm. Um, he is doing something that seems counterintuitive. Even the very fact that you might be making a film that um, doesn't operate for commercial reasons. I mean, he's privileged enough to be able to do that. Yeah. That not every, every filmmaker could. And... Um, no, nobody nobody has really made an obscure surrealist Marvel film. <laughs> well, is, is that Fantastic Four that Roger Corman made? I mean that's probably, <laughs> that probably counts. Do you know what I mean? But nobody nobody's kind of gone too far outside the the box there. Yeah. So, you know, like the 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 risks I'm not and when I say that before the fanboys come for me, don't that's not me knocking a Marvel movie. That's just me kind of going, those things don't exist. They don't, there's no, there's no um, obscurity or surrealism really to it because mm. the, the formula is is very strongly set, you mm. know, particularly when it's a new one, origin story, something happens, villain is introduced, crashy bangy end. You know that that's what we get. You know that's mm. what, you know. There's no kind of you know no Marvel character standing before death trying to justify its actions. <laughs> Ghost Rider, I don't know, maybe, but I it, like you know what I mean. It's it, it it's it. You wonder if somebody made it now. So I wonder sometimes. Um, David Lowry is a great example of this. Mm. Like things like a ghost story and a green knight recently, where I've watched both of those and I've gone, How did you manage to get that through the kind of studio system? Mm-hmm. Cause they're 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 great, particularly a ghost story, a film that I, I really love is is so like I went to see a ghost story. 
this is the closest I can think in, mo- in modern terms of going to see a cocktail film mm-hmm. at the time. So I remember being in QFT and watching a ghost story. And the discomfort in the room was palpable. Because essentially what you have is an actor under a sheet being a ghost, standing in the corner of rooms, watching life continue, conversing with other ghosts, and then traversing time. Uh And the room got really, initially, really uncomfortable. And then there was almost this moment where everybody just kind of (laughs) unclenched and relaxed their shoulders. And it just became this, like, this kind of meditative experience of watching this thing and letting it do that thing of let it speak to those that need to be spoken to. And also for the people, this is not for, I can hear you sign behind me mm, and that's yeah. okay too. <laughs> Equally, I can hear the door bang when somebody leaves because they've had enough. Oh, I love when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think, I think that's probably the closest it's me- a memory I have of watching something that kind of was difficult for for people to engage with and encounter in a, in a cinema setting. Hans um, Love is the one I always cite. And my screening of it. Yeah. I went to two screen two preview screenings in a week. Um, one I think was the press show, which was at QFT, so it was like very very empty screen anyway. Um, and sort of people who were inclined to watch arty films. And mm. then I went to like a radio giveaway preview. I loved the film so much. I went to see it twice in one week. <laughs> um, and I mean, it was a really uncomfortable experience for me anyway, because I, I took a girl that I had previously been seeing and it was a weird trying to like trying to be friends, but it was really uncomfortable and probably shouldn't have taken her. But so many people walked out of that screening. Mm during the film they just couldn't couldn't gel with it at all it was not an adam sandler movie yeah i guess for them um and it's a bit weird but i think as well our focus on stars as a means of navigating a film of focusing on the lead actor so ghost story is quite an interesting one in the sense that you know you have somebody that's behind a sheet so mm-hmm. it almost doesn't matter who that is behind the sheet because you're looking at the sheet yeah um, that becomes not the concern anymore. And that's also one of the things that I think Cocteau picks up in his film because there are, I mean, this, this film has no credits. He does not acknowledge anybody who was in it. And there are yeah. some famous faces in there. Um, and I don't know if you were prepared for some of them, you know, if, if you recognize anybody. That... I, pro- I probably missed a whole bunch of them because I did, I did do a bit of looking and I was like, Picasso was in this. Yep. Didn't, didn't know that. Sorry. Ignorant. Guy that I am didn't know what Picasso looked like. I did spot Yul Brenner. Uh huh. Um, but so that, that's, what, probably gonna, the, that's probably the only one. Well, I, I'll pick up again on what on what Cocteau says about this, um, and also I think about being sort of slightly different from the way that people normally think about the filmmaking process. Um, so he says it's amused people to talk about stars agreeing to take parts in my film. This is a mistake. Unreality has even stricter laws than realism because realism is assisted by habit, while the unreal, because of its unexpected nature, requires extreme precision down to the last detail. There are few, very few characters in the Testament d'Orfe, and nothing is less easy to play than a small part, since only a great talent can rapidly hit on the striking detail that a lesser talent will not discover except with time. 
My famous friends who answered my request accepted parts that a lot of unknown actors would have refused to play, but there will be no credits. Recognize them if you will, and if they act here, it is not because they are famous actors, but because they are my friends. They know that I am employing them on the same basis as the effects men, the electricians, the boom operator, the cameraman, or the admirable and adorable Claude Pinoteau, my right hand. In short, on the same basis as the whole of a team in which the least subordinate has that craftsman's genius without which a film would remain a more per- a mere procession of images. Uh, and he says then also, Moreover, my film was not wealthy enough to afford so many actors, so I had to appeal to friends who would agree to make it for nothing. It so happened that these friends were famous actors. This is the real secret of the matter. It was my good fortune to be poor. <laughs> um, but what I love about that... <laughs> why i've heard that one is that he is somebody who has basically treats everyone the same on set yeah doesn't matter what your job is yeah there's no level no he it's very it's a very communist way of looking at things it's it's recognizing that without any you know without the caterer without the person who who you know does the tiniest of things the film wouldn't happen yeah and which in some ways is the way it should be yeah, when you see those those list of credits and credits and credits of people who have all contributed, yeah, but all you're really there, you're not there because, you know, uh, Adam Smith, generic name, not real person, but probably a real person, <laughs> is the best boy on this film. Yeah, whatever that even means, <laughs> you know, like nobody's going that. It's because it's a it's because it's a Tom Hanks movie. Yeah, yeah, Do you know. Or- our focus with star attraction is is I mean we we've I don't think we've really had much conversation about stars in terms of the director star and we we, we talked a little bit about auteurs mm. and we've talked a bit about people like Chaplin before as mm-hmm. a being a as a being an example of somebody who actually maybe is one of those rare people who defines an auteur where you're doing multiple parts of the process. Anna Biller is another one who we adore who basically takes helm of everything and also acts on it. Right. So this one feels to me more like a much more touristic film because Cocteau isn't just writing it. He isn't just directing it. He actually is starring in it. This is, you know, he is a, a, an all encompassing presence within it. Yeah. Um, but I love that, that, that D snobification that, that goes on that, you know, you or I could rack up as a beginner and be just as well received as, as your Brenner. Yeah. Picasso. <laughs> Absolutely. That was the one when I read that, I was like, you get Picasso in your film because he's like lives two doors down. Well, they they'd worked together previously on a uh, a musical, okay, a stage musical. I think it was Parade uh, that they had done. Circa oh, it's been a while since I looked at this. About nineteen thirty-five, I think. Mm. Um, so they had, and there's a. Oh, I went to see an exhibition in the uh, VNA. I think it was years ago. Uh, all about surrealism. And it was one of the things that was in there. And I remember just being blown away by all this sort of collaborative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it was another line. I, I quote this one to you um, before, before we started, but I'll, I'll, re, I'll read it out for people who are actually engaging with us. Cause I think it might also be a, a nice place for us to go with our conversation or it might stimulate something. Um, so he says, I hit the picturesque, the poetical uh, fantasy and symbols all those old lifelines that the audience clings to whenever it falls out of its everyday comfort into the ocean of things that disturb it, which it avoids for fear of drowning. Only a shipwreck is beautiful. Only disobedience towards dead rules. 
Only the accidental and the erroneous, provided man is strong enough to sanctify them and make them exemplary. An error ceases to be one if the person who commits it changes it into what Baudelaire calls the most recent expression of beauty. I quite like that one. Is the shipwreck beautiful, Neil? Well, if this if this is a shipwreck, or if the, these three these three films are well, are they one collective shipwreck or three individual shipwrecks? I think they do have a beauty to them. Mm. I think they definitely do because they are messy. They are not what you would, you know. They do not fit the type. They do not fit the the picturesque, but they certainly tell a story of something that has been or possibly will be. If you think of a, of a shipwreck potentially being restored to its mm. former glory, um, I think they it has a the the three films definitely have a profound and deep impact within within each of them mm. individually and collectively. Um, so I think there is definitely beauty to the to the shipwreck. Like a shipwreck, a shipwreck implies that something went wrong, like an accident happened as well. And I think in this, I mean, we talked about, I think it was the first film where they were cleaning up mm-hmm. and he, he took the shot of the, the smoke and the dust that was generated by like the, the cleaning yeah. around the room, you know, happy accidents as it were. I don't think we think of shipwrecks as happy accidents. We tend to think of them as tragedies. Um, but I think there can be uh, incidents, accidents that good things can come from. I suppose it's the magic, isn't it? Like, you know, if you're doing a play or you're doing a film or you're creating a piece of art, um, often if it's scripted and planned and storyboarded, there's a very definite plan of how it should look, how it should feel, how it should be said. Hmm. But in the moment, and what you're always looking for is that magical spark that makes it something else. Like, what is it that sets take four aside from takes one to 50 if you're Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, what, you know, what is that thing that, 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 that happened differently that suddenly connects and resonates and feels like this has worked? Yeah. That perhaps is the accident. It's not something you can plan for. Yeah. I mean, you, you can sort of try and shape it. Um, but I know from having, like, even from having done plays, I mean, there's nights where you've worked your ass off and an audience just sits there in, in dead silence, not responding or engaging at all. Yeah. And yet there'll be another night where you'll go on, feel that you're not prepared at all, um, that things are going wrong and the audience are lapping it up and visibly and, and, and physically responding to what you're doing. Yeah. Um, which feels like there's the happy magic. It's the accident that's happened that night. Is what they've, you know, they felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess there's an element of that within these films that no matter what was planned, like it feels like at times that they're not really scripted. There's something yeah. slightly odd, slightly awkward about it. Um, that they're finding their way as they go through. And that creates something that's quite different. I mean, there's there's a line in this that says that this isn't a film. 
this is real life. <laughs> well, it certainly has enough chaos in it for that to be true. Yeah. I I wonder if we, you know, it's it's that thing of if when you revisit a film, like mm. it, you see something completely different. And like if we if we came back to these three films in a year, eighteen oh. months, would I have a completely different set of notes? I have because I've, I've, I've various thoughts and things scribbled here, and I, I wonder is are these three films that are in some ways kaleidoscopic in that you never see the same thing really twice because the you know I was, like, I was a kid I had a kaleidoscope and you know the crystals kind of shift at the end into different patterns and different things and mm-hmm. it's never quite the same thing that you see yeah um and i wonder are these films or or potentially any film like that where you come to it you sit down with it and it's a completely different experience but certainly in the case of this where it's it's so obscure and has so much uh and so many little details i think Mm-hmm. In in the midst of uh, what what we'll loosely call narrative, that it um, you you could totally see a different thing every time you watch it because you you've been over these several times. So I yeah. suppose that's a question for you: Do you see something different every time, or do you? My my experience has evolved. So one of the things I've I've said before on I think on set on this show, and I've said it in terms of other places, is that. Each time we watch a film is affected not just by our watching of the film and the atmosphere that we watch the film in, but also by the films that we have seen around it and the art that we have encountered around it. Mm. You know, if you go into watching this in a bad mood, you're going to get a different thing out of it than if you go in with a good mood. If you're feeling particularly morbid, you will get something else out of it than if you're going in full of the joys of life. I mean, it's the difference between having just lost your mother and having given, you know, brought a new life into the world. Yeah. Like those two things will affect how you read what's going on within this. <laughs> I did watch this with a headache yesterday, so I don't know if that <laughs> impacted anything. I don't. Um, similarly, we have we've been watching this in the context of a series of films that are dealing with altered realities, hmm. and so we're already well into the mirrorland. You know, we are we are well on that path. I mean, there's no mirrors in this film. The, the mirrors are refused, and you know how do you how do you get through when there's no mirrors? It's like you must. Yeah, another thing I scribbled down: no mirrors in this no mirrors. final part. You must have a mirror to disappear. He says uh-huh. to suggest at one stage, and suggests says mirrors reflect too much. They think they are profound, which made me go. In the last episode, <laughs> where I'm having this wonderfully profound conversation about every time you look in a mirror, you're that little bit older. You're a little bit closer to death. And I'm like, oh, Neil, you thought you were having a profound conversation. You're not. Mirrors reflect too much and it's a complete nonsense. That's what, that's what's difficult about these films too, because he says one thing in one film and then completely almost contradicts himself in the next one. You might be reassured that that's another one of those quotes that I stuck down in my own notes. <laughs> you know, the same stuff is resonating with the two of us. You yeah, know, and I think, is... I think I scribbled it down because we had talked a lot about mirrors the whole way through this and even, again, back to the Matrix conversation where mirrors were a gateway and a portal, Alice in Wonderland, through the looking glass, all that stuff. Yeah. We, we have talked about in various guises over the last few episodes. So I think, again, that's why that kind of, that, that moment stuck out. Well, we've, we've put it in our own heads. I mean, so again, it's that thing is that you, when you go through the film with that 
in your head already you are looking for those details in a way that maybe you wouldn't have done if we had watched if, i mean we could have watched anything else we could have watched et last <laughs> yeah. and then come to this and that will set things off differently but you'll also find that there are, we i think we instinctively look for links of commonality to make sense of stuff um you know so that there, there's a whole bunch of things going on i mean in the 20 odd years since i first saw this film my life experience has changed mm-hmm. um my experiences with death have evolved um and so again i'm much more aware of my own mortality i'm aware of the stuff that i hope to do when i was 20 that i have not done now that i'm 40 yeah not in the stuff that i have done i'm more aware of the stuff that i haven't done than the stuff that i have done so there's an element as well of me thinking about my own legacy such as it is you know mm. and like i've exhibited artworks and stuff in the time since so again my feeling about my own creations has changed mm-hmm. um i mean there's there, there is a line in this about how works of art make themselves they hate their parents um which hits me for you know <laughs> that kind of the, i don't know that that's that's an interesting philosophy i need to kind of i would like to tap into more mm. um but my knowledge of film has also increased. Yeah. So I know that I'm saying this differently to how I did back then. And also I've deliberately gone out of my way to watch these three films back to back with a better knowledge of Cocteau's Ilva. You know, so there is different things that are that are that are connecting, that are resonating. Um and I'm I I think more than anything the joy of doing this with you has been seeing somebody else coming to this for the first time. Mm. who's feeling something that's instantaneous and is genuine and, and is theirs and is new. And it's reminding me a lot about when I first encountered these films and the sparks that they created off of me. This ended up, when I watched these first time around, ended up, I wrote an essay on Cocteau, um, which wasn't, I think, part of my syllabus, but it was who was speaking to me in terms of some of the other stuff that I was doing. And I kind of have forgotten that that joy yeah. And so again, I'm watching this. I'm thinking, like, I would love to make some films that are Cocteau-esque, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But again, you can't plan that too much because then what you end up is having something that is poetic. Mm-hmm. And I don't want poetic. I want some poetry, yeah. you know. So, in the context of our three conversations, I think I said this two weeks ago. You know, like, is what we've just done today a bit of poetry because we didn't plan it? <laughs> there's, there, yeah, there is, you, you know, you hope that people find that within what we do within this which is our kind of art i suppose or it's one of our art forms that i hope that there's poetry within here that people find that resonates that connects um but i think for me what i've got out of this a lot is is the experience again of film about going into something and just feeling like i feel these for me these films make me feel I'm not, it's not about just entertain. I'm, I go and watch another film, I'll be entertained for an hour, two hours. Mm. And that's great. And that's what I want. And I, I love being entertained. I, I don't, you know, it's a pleasurable experience. I, sometimes it prompts other thoughts. But this is a, I think, a more emotive thing for me. Yeah, I think, I think for me as a first timer, firstly, there has been a bit of the historical, uh, implications of these films but there's also been that thing of deep deep resonance and a bit of creativity 
sparked in me to to kind of go it is okay to go outside the lines it is okay to not fit the form um in in whatever you try to do whatever whatever your art is if you're listening to this i think it's okay i think so often it's like well done you kept everything within inside the lines (laughs) i think the truth is that the the more outside lines you go the freer you actually are like I think I think of Cocteau now as a very free individual who makes what he wants to make, does what he wants to do, gives it to us and says, do with it what you will, rather than have it kind of very easily explained away, which is why there's still all these these books and these um things now that I I I'm gonna go and tap into because I want to know more mm. about this character because of what what these three films have sparked in me like I, I want to find out like that that art of cinema book is is on its way <laughs> um because i want to know what what he thinks of not just his film but just film as a mm. as an art form to see how that resonates with me and what in what i do here and what i do individually um so this this kind of mini series that we've dropped into the middle of this has has been really great for me um, because it, it's done that thing again where you know and we talked about it last time I think it was last time where it's like where are you fully where are you fully alive and I think you're right I think so often what we get to do here is we get to be entertained by certain things and pick out different elements. But I feel like these films have just done something much more profound than that, something deeper. Um, and I think that's something to really be treasured and, and appreciated going forward. I think in light of, of sort of saying like how would we feel in a year's time or 18 months revisiting this stuff, I think what might be curious what what i would say now would be interesting to see is if this rewatching sparks something yeah. uh, for, for me for, for me the rewatching sparks something if watching this has sparked something for you and where we end up and further down the line months. yeah you know in the sense that look I, i'm thinking about our our bernal books event that we did hmm. and how that impacted you and what you were doing at that time yeah, um, because I think of all of us, you were the one that most visibly was making a, a, a sort of an artistic, a, a personal change. When you, I mean, for those of you who haven't watched or seen or listened to what we we did in that, um, we ended up doing a piece on 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 censorship and about, and we had a symbolic book burning. But Neil actually burnt his notebooks for his films and faith project. <laughs> Which was, I mean, yeah. I'm very emotional about it at the time. I still do get emotional when I think about it and when I watch the video. Because, <laughs> little tear. And because what what that was at that point was that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. I mm. was doing something that I felt would attract a certain audience. Yeah. And now I am doing what I want to do because it has it has come back. Um, 
that you know that phoenix has risen the phoenixologist in me has has brought something back to life and it is i hope different and i hope more honest than it was previously um and it it certainly feels it certainly feels more authentic now than it did at times not all the time like not to say that i was completely putting fakery out into the world previously but there was a bit of if i do this this will hurt this will this will hit a certain mm-hmm. marker mm-hmm. or if i do this this will potentially burn a bridge to getting somewhere else that could lead to something else yeah and now i'm like after after that event and burning the notebook I now have a new notebook. It has more ideas. Mm-hmm. And that that's a notebook that I'm actually prouder of because I don't remember anything in the previous notebook at all, which is really interesting. Ooh. I can't even remember what some of those things were. So I think, yeah, I think that 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 event mm. probably sparked something in me. Um and now with another spark to work with. I mean, I'm not trying to blow our own trumpet and be <laughs> be masturbatory in our kind of self-congratulations, but I'm also aware that when we did that event, we were not following what we people wanted us to do. Yeah. Um, people were very uncomfortable with the idea of us trying to have that kind of event at all. And Even people I still who, think it's who like, landed in that night were like, you're, sorry, you're doing what now? Just like, we, we told you. <laughs> <laughs> This was very clear in everything we put out about this that this is what we were going to do. We weren't joking. Um, but, I mean, the, why I'm referring to that as well is because within the context of, of, of Cocteau's conversation, you've literally gone through a death. Mm. You, you've had your own symbolic death. So, I mean, when he is, suggests that the artist has to go through multiple deaths, well, the poet has to go through multiple deaths in order to be real. Yeah. Congratulations, Neil. You're on your way to being a poet. I'm a little phoenix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think maybe that's just the destiny of, of anyone who works in any kind of art form is that the success is fine, but actually it's those, it's it, it's the other things. It's, it, it's the mistakes. It's the failures. It's the having to lose your way and kind of be reborn that makes you who you are and will hopefully lend itself to some kind of immortality. Yeah. I hope. I hope so. I hope so. Well, not immortality. Like I'm not. You know, I'm not oh, looking I don't for. Die. I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking for for big things in what I do, but I'm. I, I'm certainly happier now doing what I do than I was, and that was why it had to go into the fire. So, yeah. Thanks for for that, and um, thanks for introducing me to Cocteau. Because you're in real trouble now when I start. <laughs> but here, I've got to go because I've got to get some opium. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where you get an opium dealer these days. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 maybe that's the next series we need to do is, is films by people who are just high on whatever substance. Um, but <laughs> I, I, look, I, I hope that this has been a worthwhile trip for, for those of you at home who are sitting and listening and watching who have been following along and also exploring these films. And if you know these films already, hopefully the conversations we've had have, have, have brought out something else. Um, but if nothing else, I hope that you go and visit these films because I think that 
every film that we've talked about. A bit like Cocteau. I mean, I don't really think that we, we prioritize one over another, but there's there's stuff that we select, you know, and, and wait to see what, what it does to us. And I didn't think their conversations were going to go the way that they've done over this. Um, and I'm actually surprised this conversation has not been more messy mm. because the film feels like it lends itself to more mess. <laughs> but we've managed to get through it safely. I think so. I think so. So I don't know what I'm going to throw at you next, Neil, but there'll be something else. Oh, bring it, bring it on. <laughs> bring it on, whatever it is. Because, I, I, you know, and again, not to blow our own our own trumpet, but um, I don't think you've ever thrown anything at me that I've actually, like, gone no, or hated, or anything like that. I think it's, I think it's, there's always, um, there's always something crops up when you say, have you ever watched, insert film title, <laughs> something always pops up and you know, you know how to, how to push my buttons. You've got me, You've got me sussed. I think you know what what catnip to send me. I th- I really don't. I think it's just sheer chance. Um, I I just like the idea that that of challenging people and seeing where that goes because it's in the challenge. I think that we come alive. The mm. stuff that I've been asked to see to to sit and watch on this that was not what I would have picked. Um, and hey, but Transformers find- was great though. <laughs> But there's there's always something that comes out of those conversations. There is always something that comes out of the challenge. I mean, the one that we always cite is The Room, which was not a film that I have any love for, mm. but it ended up prompting multiple conversations as a result. And I'm very, very glad that we've had those opportunities because that's the challenge. You know, and there's films that I've revisited that I hated before that now I think are works of genius, but that's a whole other conversation mm. that we had. Um so, Neil, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a joy doing this little trilogy with you. Yeah, I've had so much fun. Thank you so much for, um, genuinely, genuinely, thank you so much for letting me do this. Good news is, we're not done with Cocteau. I mean, we've, we've there's a couple of other Cocteau films I think we'll probably come to at some point, so uh, I'll keep you in the loop with that. Um, folks at home, thank you very much as well for, for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the show, uh, do remember to uh, hit your subscribe button on whatever platform you're on. And if you can... Leave us a review somewhere. Let us know what you're thinking. Uh, Whether you like it or you loathe it, your feedback is essential for us. You'll find us on all sorts of social media platforms. Do check us out. And our website is cinepunked.com. Find us there and there's links to all our other stuff and the back catalogue of pods to date. Uh, And uh, we will catch you again very, very soon. Until then, cheerio. Bye.